Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Thank you as always to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to become a patron of the podcast, get extended episodes each week, get access to Tips for Existence, Uncanny Hour and lots of other Patreon exclusives and free shows like uh, A Billion Thoughts, Robin's new work in progress show for uh, Edinburgh Fringe 2022. That's available uh, live online uh, tonight, actually, is the next edition for Patreon supporters. Also got some news coming up this Friday. The Patreon people will find out ahead of everyone else. And trust me, it is important that you find out ahead of everyone else. If you can't support us on Patreon, that is fine. Go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to this and rate and review five stars. That helps us out as well. Now, on this week's episode, uh, we had to reschedule at the last minute and Josie wasn't available. So since we are talking to Rachel England, a journalist who you may know from co-hosting the Brain Yapping podcast on the Cosmic Shambles Network with Dean Burnett, since her new book, Everyday Activism, and a lot of her work focuses on sustainability and climate change and that sort of stuff. We thought we would get uh, Robin Science Shambles co-host Helen Chersky to jump in as co-host for this episode, which she did from a lovely little park. So if you hear any uh, pigeons or birds tweeting in the background when Helen's talking, it's because she's literally sat in a park. So here we are on to this week's episode. Here is Robin and Helen and Rachel. Anyway, we're joined by uh, Rachel England, whose uh, book is Everyday Activism, which is a really useful book because it is one of those books where one of the things that's very easy to do, we're incredibly connected now, and we're incredibly connected to so many bad stories and difficult stories and problematic stories, and yet at the same time we feel utterly powerless, and that's what this book is. It's a, it's a fantastic, dinky book which basically takes you bit by bit through, if you've got a few spare minutes, here's something you can do. If you've got longer than that, here's something you can do at this stage, if you've got a day. And uh, and so it is incredibly pragmatic in terms of its activism. Um Rachel, what was what was the starting point? When did you realise this was a book that needed to exist? The, the publishers got in touch on the back of articles and things that I was writing already very much around this theme. And they, they I think, probably spotted an opportunity um, for there to be a book made out of it. And so when they got in touch and they said, you know, is this something that you'd be interested in doing? I was like, yeah, absolutely, because it's, it's just a book form of what I'm already doing. Well, I was just, so um, what's so what's brilliant for the audience who don't know this is that you've divided it into time periods. So depending on the amount of time you've got free, you can go to the appropriate chapter <laughs> and find a thing. And I was wondering how hard it was you found things for all. Was was one of the chat? Is it easier to find five minute bits of act- activism than you know very long bits of activism? Well, I mean, activism, it, like doing the job of activism, I suppose it's you know. All of these little things that I mention in the book, yes, they are examples of like, they are examples unto themselves of activism, but just being an activist and doing activism is sort of more of a, just like an ongoing lifestyle thing. Um, but the the different 
little jobs that I know in the book, you know, like you say, are um, five minutes, an hour or a day. Um, it, 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 a lot of it depends. Like there are some, some jobs in the book, like for example, changing your search engine provider or switching to green energy or whatever. Now we're all so used to sitting in front of a computer and doing everything digitally that actually sorting those things out takes less than five minutes and they're super easy. So actually in many ways, maybe actually taking, taking on a job that takes an hour or a day might actually be a little bit more challenging. So not even because of the time involved, but just because it usually involves doing something beyond our digital sphere, if that makes sense, going out and volunteering or um, helping a neighbor, that sort of thing. It's, it's beyond our screen comfort zone, as it were. Well, it's quite a good thing if there's many things that take less than five minutes. You know, if, if climate activity, if you can do all of it in less than five minutes, that's great, isn't it? Sorry, Robin, go on. No, no, no. I just wonder because I, I remember talking to a friend of mine who uh, was a university probably in the early 80s and she said she never really got on with her with her dad, but he came to collect her from university and she was in the car back saying all of the things she was going to do and all of these, the way that the world was going to change. And then he just said, uh, have you, um, you know, that old lady that lives next door to you, have you popped around and see her at all? Mm. and she went no and she said I was so angry because I didn't get on with my dad and I didn't agree with him politically but he had found that little bit of hole in my which I suddenly and you know yeah and 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 that's and that seems to be part of I mean when people think of activism they do you know the first thing they're probably seeing is you know someone climbing up a statue someone storming something and actually that bit of being active of somehow of of connecting yourself Mm -hmm. to a story and going, oh, how can I, how can I do something? Because it almost feels like, unless you're active, unless that activity changes everything immediately, you feel like you've failed. So that that bit of just, and, and that seems to be one of the things why a lot of people almost pull back from it or feel embarrassed by by that idea is because oh, it's not going to change the world. That's that is such a good point, and and one of the, the driving forces behind the book. Um, as you say, a lot of people think of activism as being, you know, <clears throat> on the streets with a placard shouting and climbing walls and spray painting and all that sort of thing. And yes, I mean, it absolutely is. But that's the activism that we see in the news and quite often get, you know, controversial press. Um, all of the, the little activism jobs in this book, they are forms of activism, even if they don't seem like they're going to change the world. Like... Not a really good example um, is not mowing the lawn or leave, leaving your lawn for a little for a little bit longer than you normally would. And that's we, negative time, isn't it? That's not less than five minutes. That's negative. You get right. time back. And that's it. Don't people, mow your lawn. people think, well, that doesn't make me an activist. That's not making any difference in the world. But it is on a small level. And as Robin says, a lot of people are maybe not necessarily turned off from activism because they can't see immediate change. But there is this pervasive attitude of oh what's the point you know what my my taking the extra five minutes to like properly recycle my plastic bottles or um you know checking on the neighbor occasionally or um you know putting some wildflowers down for bees eh, what does it matter it's not going to make any difference in the grand scheme of things but the point of this book is to reinforce the idea that okay no i mean realistically if I make those changes myself, no, I'm not going to change the world. That's that's just reality. But if a lot of people do it and 
talk to people about what they're doing and share their efforts, then more people will do it. And it creates a movement. And then we have collective action. And that is when the world starts to change. How much is that, do you think, sort of, because I think there's this, this, start, this kind of activism snobbery a little bit. And I think one of the problems with a lot of these things, especially around climate, is that they're not very sexy things. Like people are like, oh, I want to plant a flag here and make a statement and do a thing. And it's all very, it's some, you know, as you say, it's got a place, but a lot of the things that actually need doing are a bit boring, that they, they don't give you snobbery points. And that there's no, I mean, how much, I think with the climate crisis, quite a lot of it is like that. They're just all little things. We just need to change the little bits of everything. Mm. It's not really storm. I mean, you probably do need to storm some barricades as well, but most of it is not storming the barricades. It's sweeping up. Well, <laughs> it's that, doing the tidying up. That's it's not very exactly sexy. It. It's not, it, it's not sexy. And I mean, it's, there are, I mean, there are obviously some things you can do that are, you know, have got more sex appeal than others or have come with some kind of bragging rights. I mean, I'm, I'm very militant about littering around my house, for example. I live like in um, quite a nice part of the city. There's a canal and uh, I, I get furious when people drop litter. And so I always make this really militant point of picking it up and putting it on my Instagram and being like, look, put it in the bin. You know, and of course that gives me like, there's an element of like smuggery, personal glory there. Look at me, everyone. Um, but as you say, the reality is, is that some of it is just very, very dull. It's putting your washing machine on a lower setting. Um, it's line drying your pants instead of putting them in the, in the tumble dryer. It's just not sexy, boring stuff. But as you say, when people come to- Depends on the pants. Well, I mean, true that. Um, but I use an analogy in the book, which is um, one, one wasp at a picnic is annoying, but a swarm is a game changer. And so it's all about doing these little waspy actions that help create a much bigger swarm. When did you start? When was at what age did you start to get the inclination to go right? I, I, I want to do something, whether it's you know your first march or the first kind of newsletter you thought of writing or just talking to your friends. When when did that become part of of who you are? So I sort of cut my teeth in journalism doing like local arts and entertainment and this was back in um 2007 when the whole economic universe was falling apart um and uh, the job i had i was made redundant from and so i ended up getting a um a maternity contract at a magazine that dealt with waste and recycling and again here's a good example which one was it i probably know it go on which one was it uh, resource they're based in bristol oh, yeah shout out to resort. I've heard of that one I've written for some of the others go on and um but this my is first ever publication so sorry to see my first ever published article was for plastics recycling weekly oh yeah that was my I know them no, 17. Familiar with those but guys. yeah go on um but yeah <laughs> so this is this is a sort of like the not sexy element of it where suddenly I was thrown headfirst into this world of literally yeah waste basically um and up until that point, I was very, you know, I had as much understanding of waste and recycling as the next person. You know, don't put things in a bin. It's bad. It goes to landfill. Recycle them. They go to some magic place and everything's fine. Um, and then I started working for this magazine and realized there was actually so much to it. Um, so many levels upon levels and everything that we use, all of the stuff that we consume, all of the materials we go through have political and economical and social implications. Um, and so when I started really digging down into it, I was like, my God, literally everything we do is connected 
to, you know, the, the, the climate crisis in, in some shape or form. Um, so I think that was probably when I realized, yeah, this is something that I'm really interested in. Um, and, and when I left that title, that was when I went freelance and that's when I started focusing on sustainability as like my, my specialism. See, that's what we're just talking about those things there. And I, I wonder why it is that supermarkets have still not got to, for instance, if you go and get milk, the idea that there would just be that you, you take the container that you started off with and you it's a it's a bit like the the latitude festival was one of the first ones i think to have you had to put down five quid for your uh um your beer glass um and so of course no one drops them now because you have to spend another five quid so it means that suddenly and that idea of just going right here's your milk thing here's the cheese thing it it feels like i mean that that wouldn't be such a huge step and yet it feels like a long way off before we start because i look at the amount of packaging that i go through in a week uh in terms of food packaging yeah. and it is and I, and I know i could probably cut down it and that, that i'm not blaming the system i blame myself as well there but there is a it's very hard to do a weekly shop and not find yourself with an enormous amount of packaging yeah absolutely i mean that is the the, the packaging crisis is one of the biggest challenges facing the retail sector in terms of their you know their csr their corporate responsibilities um the problem is, is that, dare I say it, capitalism reigns supreme. And there is no doubt in my mind and in the minds of the people that have written reports on these things that if supermarkets wanted to, they could instigate that kind of like reuse um, methodology. They could do it tomorrow. What it is that stops it is the, you know, nobody wants to be the first one to do it because there's risk involved. Nobody wants to be the first supermarket to go, okay, you know, from now on, all of the cereal comes in refillable pouches because invariably there'll be pushback from that. And people will be like, well, I don't like that. I want my cereal to come in a box. And then they'll go elsewhere. And so there's the financial risk. However, and I just finished writing an article about this. One thing that um, coronavirus and COVID has, has shown us, and there are many, ish- many lessons that we can take from the corona crisis um, and apply them to the climate crisis, is that actually, if governments and economies and major multinational corporations, who are met, often the ones responsible for driving change, they actually pull their finger out and work together on a global and collaborative scale, things can happen very quickly. I mean, let's, let's not lose sight of the fact that when it comes to vaccines, for example, and this is something that's been put in the press repeatedly, it's, um, a major reason that people are concerned about taking up the vaccine is, oh, well, they usually take like 10 years to get, you know, to market. So this can't be safe. Well, it is safe. The fact is, is that it just had the resources and the knowledge and the learning and the sharing and the red tape lifted and it happened. And the same thing can happen with meaningful change for the climate crisis. Yet it's not in a lot of people's, by which I mean companies and and capitalists, best interests to do so. Can I ask? I was just going to ask Helen uh, on, on on this, and also ask you, Rich. But something we've talked about on our Sunday Science uh, Q and A a bit is the situation in the Science Museum with uh, the fact that they have three fossil fuel companies now mm. uh, sponsoring them, including one sponsoring basically their climate change exhibition. 
Um, for me, I can kind of, I mean, I'm always very careful about getting involved because I just don't know anything, but I was able to get in some way, in a marginal way, you know, kind of. But I know that for someone like you, Helen, because you're a scientist, working out where you are active and how you're active becomes sometimes more problematic in terms of going, what is the best place to so can you run me through some of those thoughts that go through you in terms of activism because I know it's something that is it's something you feel very strongly about but I also realize you have to go right where do I aim what what is the the place I can put my laser sights yeah and I wouldn't have labeled it this but in some senses I've been an activist on the environment thing since I was very very young you know I I I was the one that my school who set up the recycling schemes I was the one you know pushing that for people to understand their local environment and help their birds like you know so so in but in a way i never saw myself as an activist i'm just dealing with the activist label because it's you you're quite a lot more effective quite a lot of the time if you come from inside rather than from outside and so the thing the problem with the word activist is like you're as you said this is that you're an angry person who's going to tell everyone off and basically everyone's got, the only thing that's going to happen is that a load of people are going to get super defensive and so I worked out quite early on that, yeah, there are probably times to make a fuss, but actually you're far more useful, at least the majority of the time, when you're just changing things that actually get that actually happen. Um, so you, you're not so idealistic. You say we can't ever print leaflets because it's a waste of paper. I have mm. met people who claim that. But you actually just change something in the system. So my approach to it has always been to come from the inside and, and change little things from the inside because then everyone's on your side. Whereas if you come from the outside with a big stick, basically everyone's just grumpy and defensive. And of course they're cross, you just told them off, you know. So I think approach matters a lot. And the view of a scientist is that it's our job actually to show how to have a debate. Because in a way we have these debates in science all the time. We don't know the answer, we look for evidence. We say, oh, well, we see that you think this, but then what about, like, what about this thing? And that person has to go and find another bit of evidence to defend or their position. And there's no shame attached in finding a piece of evidence and finding out it contradicts what you thought, right? So in a way, I think we're well positioned to lead a debate, but we lose that authority if we are just, and I don't mean that in, derogatory, in a derogatory way, seen as activists. So I think that scientists have this really interesting line to tread is that we, what we want, what I really care about more than anything else, apart from possibly the planet, is dealing with evidence in a robust and honest way. And the problem with activism is that sometimes it's so dogmatic, it seems that you're not doing that. And, and it's this really difficult line. So my, as a scientist, I tend to think, well, I'll, I'll leave the flag waving quite a lot of the time to other people because, because my role is to, is to in, in, improve the standard of debate and to show, say, okay, well, I see your bit of evidence. Well, let's discuss this thing. How does that fit in with your mm. evidence? And it's not that I won't have a strong opinion. It's just that I care about the debate more than the outcome and and so yeah the, so i i'm happy to leave some flag there are things i care very strongly about and i'm quite loud about and i was i had quite a rant on twitter about shell because i think that the evidence is there that's the thing in the case of shell the evidence is very clear they are not doing a good job they don't have the moral authority to be telling the rest of us about climate change and the evidence is really strong on that um but in general i think that scientists can have strong opinions but it's also what we really want is a good and honest debate. And the problem with activism is that in the in a general way, it sometimes gets tied up with ideological things that exclude a lot of people by default. And then you will never bring those people along if you threaten their identity. 
so it, it's really complicated. But what the thing, you know, the thing I like about Rachel's book actually is that they, all of these things are, some of the, they're very, they're not, they're not big identity statements, a lot of them. It's just like, oh, well, you're just a person. Well, how can you be a different type of person or a better type of person? How can you manage being a citizen of planet Earth better? Well, have you thought about your search engine? Have you thought about the worms in your garden, whatever it is? And that's quite, it doesn't threaten anyone's identity. And climate has got so tied up in identity mm. that it's problematic. So I was wondering, Richard, when you were looking for those ideas, did you find anything that really surprised you or that you, you thought would be controversial? Like, what, did, what have you had reactions to from people? Um, it's, it's funny we keep coming back to the search engine thing, but actually a lot of people have been really surprised that actually, yes, it is It is perfectly feasible to make a, a difference, to make a positive difference, albeit small, by simply changing your search engine. Um, another one, a, a lot of people have um, expressed a lot of interest in driving and how obviously electric vehicles are, are going to play a major role in like dealing with emissions from transport. But for, at this juncture, they're just not a practical reality for a lot of people because of cost. Uh, because of the infrastructure and charging and that sort of thing. Um, so what can you do? Okay, well, you can just make sure that your car's in good running order because that makes it run more efficiently. Doesn't seem like a very big thing, but there is the stats to back it up. And um, and people are like, oh my gosh, yeah, that's that's just such a really simple thing that you can do um, to, to make a difference. Um, and going, going back to what you were saying about you know, the label of activism, I think that you're absolutely right that the term activist, and like I said, because activism as it's popular, uh, as it's commonly known with its like banners and, and sign waving and drum beating often gets a lot of bad press. There are absolutely negative connotations associated with the word when actually I think everyone can be an activist by simply just making these small changes and that has complete departure from you know the the polarizing aspect of it so i would hope that maybe the people people that do read the book will think you know as, as you said okay i can be an activist and i don't have to be beating my drum and telling people off i'm just being an activist by just making tiny tweaks to my life that are maybe making the planet a little bit better some of them are See, quite this... embarrassing oh sorry robin go on i was no, just saying quickly some of them are quite embarrassing because in a way like it really highlights that we've lived in a world where we've been so privileged we can afford to just throw things away yeah. or just not replace them. And and if you look at that in history, if you look at, you know, sort of even graves from three, I don't know, 10,000 years ago, people valued things because things were precious. It, they were hard to make. They were hard to find. They held onto them. They passed them down to generations. Uh, well, probably not if you found them in a grave. But, you know, and, and it, it suddenly, it looks... In order for some of the things in your book to make a difference, you have to have a society that is so wasteful. <laughs> it's almost embarrassing that anyone needs to be told but to, that's if they're going to have a car to run it. You know, I mean, it's, it's silly, isn't it? It's, it's, but we do need to be told. It so. is embarrassing, but you're quite right. Is that for a lot of people, it just wouldn't. It just doesn't occur. It's just part of part of our lifestyles that we've grown up with, that we've been, you know, we've been privileged to enjoy, which is yeah sort of yeah just wasteful and so it's not often it, it's not until someone sort of comes along and says oh, maybe we should just think about minimizing that a bit and people go oh, why and then and then they get the opportunity to think about it then that's yeah that's when people go oh my god hang on a minute and um, and that's when the change happens 
See, I just I, I find it when Helen talks about you know the importance of of, of playing fair and and being evidence based. The, the 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 problem, and this is the bit which is always I think very difficult, especially when it's involving scientists, which is the 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 means of uh uh in, in terms of amplifying opinion is owned by very few people um the, the 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 loudest voices and they don't play fair and though they might not consider themselves activists you might say whether it's anti-activists there is a noise coming perpetually and quite a loud noise and often not justified by evidence where you are always being you know, you know anything that requires change i mean we see it in the real really lazy way that you know words like you know the woke are used or mm-hmm. cancel all of these things which means that there's there's a very very loud noise that anything which suggests change or a change of understanding is is seen as being the the, the worst side of a kind of Che Guevara t shirt wearing activist. Yeah, and it's it's a threat to your myths possibly. Um, and that seems to me the hard thing, which is to both play fair and make a difference when there's such a limited number of voices getting actually that full amplification. I think historically, when it comes to like looking at climate ma- climate matters. Um, I think that there's been this sort of misconception that making a difference requires some kind of massive sacrificial life changes. And I wonder if that's perhaps where a lot of, um, as Helen says, the defensiveness comes from, because you know, previously, before a lot of, um, a lot of the, the luxuries of change afforded by technology were brought to the fore, you know, being a very good person in terms of the environment was a bit of a faff. Um, and as you say, people feel threatened, the lifestyle they, they have come to enjoy, they feel threatened and because then become defensive. And that it obviously makes sense. Um, the fact is now though, is that making changes that are meaningful, it does not require any level of massive lifestyle sacrifice. And in many cases, it's as simple as, you know, pressing a different button on an appliance or, um, you know, just as as we mentioned, look like actually looking after your car, which people should be doing in the first place anyway, or even going back to the bees with the grass, simply not mowing your lawn. You know, um, and there is there is these are changes, but they're not difficult changes. They just they just. Well, it's, just, it's, it's interesting that it's so sticky. So I remember having, when, again, when I was a student, I organized a student dinner that was all organic food. And at the time, this was in 1998, right? This was unheard of. And everybody, like the universal reaction was, oh, first of all, it wasn't brown goo. And secondly, that it was actually better. And it was such a revelation that it, like, it was like, if it's better, why aren't you having it? And of course, organic food, especially at the time, is a bit more expensive. But it's, even if you take out all the climate, connotations it's a better way of doing things like why would you have a combustion fueled car like all these little explosions and pollution right in the street how about even if you're going to still have the same emissions how about putting them all in the same place where you can you know keep track of them a bit better and it's just better and it's it's amazing to me how much that sacrifice thing is so persistent that you have to suffer to be a to be better to be a better person sometimes it's like how about you, you can have your cake and eat it and why are we so resistant to this idea, Rachel? If you got, you know, why is this? I mean, this is this is what you you mentioned um, previously. We were like, oh, people in you know your line of work, like, oh, we mustn't print leaflets. Leaflets are bad. I mean, okay, yeah, on the face of it, leaflets are made from paper, and we need to be saving paper, and that's fine, of course. But 
I mean, I've, I've written this book and I don't live like this insanely pious lifestyle. You know, I have a car. I occasionally go on foreign holidays when allowed. I eat meat from time to time. This isn't about everybody being devout environmentalists. It's just about everybody making these small changes. And I wonder if the, the sort of like pushback against it and this like resistance to change comes from, like I said, it's like once upon a time when being an environmentalist had all kinds of hippie connotations, you know, you probably wore sandals everywhere and maybe your skirt was made out of hemp and all of these sorts of things. And, and I do not wish to make vast generalizations, but there are certainly certain demographics that are more resistant to these kinds of positive changes than others. And I suspect that um, it is often those demographics that have this idea that being an environmentalist makes you some kind of hippie or some kind of you know, tree hugger. And if in your mind that's a bad thing, then that probably says something about your wider outlook on life anyway, if you know what I mean. And for those listening, you should know that uh, we're all in different uh, places and actually Helen is leaning against a tree. She's actually in a park or, or um, actually on the, on the bank of the Thames at the moment. She, at no point has she turned around pigeons. to hug it when we've been watching anyway. We've not seen that. Oh, it's you like can't the, see what they can't. So like, <laughs> reach behind me and hug it while we're talking. <laughs> but it is, it, I mean, you're right about, you, you still sometimes hear the people kind of saying, oh, yeah, the old hummus eating. And you go, loads of people eat hummus yeah, now. What, what's that the really is not... That? The, yeah, chickpea paste is, is no longer much. But it's, it, it intrigues me as well sometimes about the individualism in, in our culture. I mean, sometimes we've seen this during the pandemic. I mean, the other day there was there was some celebrity, I think, on a breakfast TV show. Um, they were just saying that they weren't going to have the vaccine because they had a great immune system anyway and they couldn't wait to start hugging people. Yeah. And I saw various people saying, yes, my body, my rights. And my reply was just, but that's the same with drink driving as saying uh, my car, my rules and you go well unfortunately it, it isn't just restrict it's not just got the effect on you and I had lots of people said, replying things such as well you've been vaccinated so why do you care which to me is a very interesting perspective and I see that quite a lot and again it might be overly amplified but that sense that well it doesn't make any difference to you as if to, to, to entirely remove any sense of connection or indeed that people do get, you know, it, 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 it can feel good for people to go, good, our connection is good and things are better for more people than me alone. And that seems to be one of the battles sometimes in our culture, that the rise of that kind of individualism and, you know, you ain't the boss it's of so me. It's so frustrating. So one of my, well, I've got a lot of bees in my bonnet, as we all know, <laughs> but one of them is, so, you know, there are places where you, if you buy, um, like moisturizer or something it comes in a pot and you can take the pot back and if you take the pot back they'll give you a i don't know some free face masks or something you don't really want right and i one of the things that frustrates me and it used to happen you know or taking trainers to be recycled and they'll give you a voucher or something if you take your trainers and so i have turned up at those places with a huge stack of pots or trainers um and i said oh i've got all these trainers for you and they're like oh but we can't give you all the vouchers. And I'm like, I don't want a voucher. I just want to give you trainers so you can recycle them. And like, oh, I'll have to check with my manager. No, I don't want a voucher. I just want to give you some trainers to recycle. And it's and it's like this, it depends on the person in the shop, but they can be so, like, it's so hard to explain that. I'm not doing this because I want the free voucher or the free face mask or the free thing that I didn't want, so I shouldn't have it anyway. 
I just want to I just want to give you my pot so you can turn it into another pot. And they're creating a voucher situation when what they really want to say is, your trainers stink. <laughs> and they really, so we're pretending it's a voucher issue, but please don't bring them into our that, shop. That might be true, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting that you, you bring up those voucher schemes. Um, and, um, I mean, behavioural change is, I mean, I, I'm not a psychologist, but I've I, I read up a bit on behavioural change, especially around climate. And there are some very mixed opinions on, like, which way we should be going with this i mean on one hand we've got the the incentivization camp which we just mentioned then you know you can get a voucher if you bring your shoes back whatever um fine again though at the very beginning of our chat we were talking about like the the role that good old capitalism plays in this sort of thing that's not always feasible i have found that increasingly though and i think that this is one thing that we can thank social media for is that um people people do i mean i do believe that people are inherently good and they do inherently want to be um, make they want to be doing positive things for the planet and i think that social media has made it much easier for people to share their messages and their actions i mean i i used the example earlier of me you know ranting and raving about the trash in the, in the canal where i live but instead of being preached to by a company or being bribed by a company or the government or some faceless corporation, when people's friends and loved ones sort of say, oh, well, look, I've been doing this, actually, that, I think, has more of an impact on people's behaviour and has more of a more of a chance of driving meaningful change. And that is something that I talk about in the book is the importance of, like, having these conversations. I mean, maybe not necessarily at depth or at length, but by making it clear to everyone, to, to your your fans or your followers or your family, that these are the things that you're doing and just to ingrain a little bit on their psyche, the fact that the people they care about are actually are, are caring about these things. It's it also that thing. doesn't it? It gives permission. Yeah, yeah. Someone else has done it first. No, I just wonder. I was just thinking. Also, it's the fact that, as you said earlier on, Helen, so often something is received as an accusation rather than uh, actually just, oh, I'm trying to do that. Oh, I suppose so. I'm a Nazi. No, you're not. I just said that I'm not going to eat your veal. I hope you don't mind. I'm really sorry you've gone to all the bother to make this lovely veal dish, but I, I don't eat veal. Oh, I'm a murderer then. I didn't say, you know, all of that stuff, I think is kind of, it, yeah, it's it's very hard to get out of that. I've, I want to ask you one very important question, Rachel. Oh. What is uh, changing from Google, what should I change to? Because I, I tried to do it the other day and one of the sites is no longer operational uh, as a search engine, but what's the one that you use? I use Ecosia. Right, brilliant. Because that you is a really that for interesting... Us, it's not, you spell it for us. So. Yes, E-C-O-S-I-A. Uh, basically, they are a, a search engine platform that plants trees when, when you do your searches. That's fantastic. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Everyday Activism is out uh, now. In fact, you can get it. And, and it's great. It is such a because it is just one you just pick up and you have a, a look and you go, oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to try and do that now. And uh, I said it also can make you a lot lazier. Uh, just, you know, don't do things in your garden. Yeah. It's a lot of tinkering with your car, but I don't have a car. In fact, I don't have a car. I don't have a dishwasher <laughs> and I don't have a tumble dryer. So in many ways, I really am a kind of, you know, Che Guevara figure of activism. My, my, my failure to get round to buying things has actually turned me into an accidental revolution. I feel you're fighting the good fight without even trying Robin 
Yeah, I don't have to get out of bed to start the fight, you know, in my smelly, wet sheets. <laughs> uh, see, and Helen, thank you so much for joining us under your tree as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. I really, I really enjoyed the nature theme. Oh, the pigeons. Uh, there was there were a couple of bees, um, but yes, it's nice, it's actually quite nice. I mean, this is technology is a great thing, right? There's there's enough reception in somewhere in a park that I can do a podcast from a park. That's quite cool. And if you put a hat out, people also now, you, you are basically, you're a, a living statue podcast as well, podcaster. So I'm sure there's, you've probably got a few just coins. Need the sign. Well. Just need the sign. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much for, for to uh, both of you for, for joining us. And, and go and find out, or, you know, have a look at all the stuff that Helen's doing, all the stuff that Rachel's doing as well, uh, beyond the books themselves. There's always lots of interesting things to find out uh, about what they're up to and, and give us plenty of ideas as well uh, for alternative ways of, of looking at the world. Thanks very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Rachel's book, Everyday Activism, is out now. We'll be back next week with another new guest. And Josie will be back next week as well. Patreon.com slash bookshambles. That's where you can go to subscribe and get all the extra goodies and help us out. Uh, Keep making the show and everything else we do at Cosmic Shambles Network. Take care, stay safe, and we will see you all next week. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.